Well, good morning again, church. You know, I, I want to do a little caveat before the sermon starts. I was um, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now at this point, I taught a young adult class here at Highland. And so one of the things, if you've ever taught maybe a Bible class, you've taught school, one of the things that happens when you're teaching and the preparing for a lesson is that that preparation and the teaching of that class actually does more formation on you than it probably does on the people you teach. Right? You just kind of begin to sit with this thing that you're studying. It becomes, begins to ruminate inside of you and it begins to shape the way that you see the world. And so today's sermon flows out of that class I taught. The group conversation we had in that class was really good and helped me to to frame how to think about the story of Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is who we're talking about today. So thank you to that young adult class that helped with this. And I apologize if some of this sounds like deja vu. Remember that show, A Few Good Men, that movie, A Few Good Men? Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, takes place most of the movie in a military courtroom. And Jack Nicholson's this high ranking military officer whom Tom Cruise, military lawyer, believes issued a code red that ended in the death of an American military man at a, at a base outside of America. <clears throat> a code red is a illegal disciplinary hazing action according to the movie that shouldn't happen and sometimes does. And so Tom Cruise is pushing Nicholson, who's on the stand, to confess. And remember, he says, I want the truth. And Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. <clears throat> and he goes on. He says, I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. Should I do it in a Nicholson voice? <sighs> I don't know. It might be embarrassing. I don't know that I can do it. I won't. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Okay, I don't want you to get caught up in the details of the argument he's making there. I want you to think about the type of argument he's making. How does the argument function? How does it work? Well, I think it's an argument based on two things, identity and loyalty. He's saying, Tom, Tom Cruise, you are an American. Okay, identity, that's who you are. And Americans don't get to question certain things. Loyalty, it's not just taboo, it's disloyal, it's treason. You should be ashamed of yourself, Tom. How dare you ask me those questions? Identity and loyalty. All right, now that's just a movie, but we see that kind of argument happen all the time, that type of argument, right? You are a part of this group, or you're a part of this family, you're a part of this school. And in this place, in this group, we don't think those things, we don't raise those questions, and we certainly never do that in this group. All right, so I want you to picture Jack Nicholson as we read John 12. All right, he is the person behind 
John 12 and the argument that's being made there, or at least the argument we see behind the scene in John 12. John 12, verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, the leaders, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Nicodemus is one of those leaders. He's a Pharisee. And these are pre-people, a group of people who pretty much think the same things. There are 600 some odd laws in the Old Testament that they take really seriously. And they would be really offended, I called it the Old Testament, right? To them, it's the Testament, it's, it's the Hebrew Bible. And they take those laws really seriously, all of them collectively, that's what they do. But they don't just think the same things religiously, they think the same things politically and socially and culturally as well. They dress alike, they go to the same parties, they hobnob with the same people, they make about the same amount of money, their kids go to the same schools, they drive the same cars, have the same retirements. All right, you're getting the picture, right? They have their values, they know who they are the Pharisees. And one thing anybody who's a Pharisee would know is that you do not mess with the temple. That's sacred ground for the Pharisees. It's this place they feel indebted to protect. And Jesus apparently did not get the memo. Because just before John 3, where we're about to be in a second, in John 2, he rushes into the temple, he overturns tables, he drives people out with the whip and makes just kind of generally a big fuss in their sacred space, right? And the Pharisees are upset about that. So they send Nicodemus, who's one of their own, a good, good Pharisee. And they call him aside and say, Nicodemus, we want you to go have a talk with little old Jesus and remind him that you don't do these kind of things in our temple. Tell him he should be ashamed of himself. So Nicodemus, it seems, goes to do just that. He comes to Jesus at night, the text says. But the conversation does not go as planned with Jesus. And I, I think most of us can testify what conversation that we've had at nighttime ever went as planned. Right? Okay. But Jesus raises all kinds of questions for him. He says things in John 3, which is this wonderful chapter about, well, a being born again and being born of the spirit and about eternal life and one prerequisite for eternal life, belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So you, you know John 3, 16, but Nicodemus did not. That was brand new to him. Whoever believes shall have eternal life. And it raises all kinds of questions for Nicodemus. But the problem is groups like his, the Pharisees, don't take questions. Penn State. I don't have to rehearse for you the abuse scandal at Penn State of a few years ago. You may remember though about that scandal that the school went to great lengths to protect itself and its coaches before the volume of evidence was simply too overwhelming, 
Remember this? And we would think that after that, after Penn State finally apologized, admitted their role and the wrongdoing, that they would have learned their lesson. That's what we would think. Groups would, would learn their lesson, right? Recently, you probably caught in the news, new allegations surfaced about one of those Penn State coaches. And the Penn State president, instead of coming out and saying, we stand with victims, we've learned as an institution and that's what we should do. We are gonna get to the bottom of this. We don't know if the allegations are true, but we are committed to finding out. Any one of those things would have been great to say. And instead the president said this, I am appalled by the rumors, by the innuendos, by the rush to judgment. We have all had enough. Really, Penn State's had enough? But that's what groups do. They get caught up in their own momentum and just roll over anybody who would dare to question them. Nicodemus knows a thing or two about this because he disappears after John 3 for four chapters. And we don't, we don't know what he's been doing for these four chapters, but we might generally call it conversion. Jesus totally disoriented him in John 3. And now he's been left with these questions for four chapters, questions about who he is, what is required of eternal life, who Jesus is. And yet he's still attached to the Pharisees. They are his social community. They are his identity. They are who he is, a Pharisee. And the problem is that Pharisees don't take questions. They don't allow outliers. And this is this really helpful reminder as we see in the story arc of Nicodemus that conversion doesn't happen in a vacuum. Conversion happens for somebody in relation to all of their social identity markers, all of their group loyalties, all of their affiliations, affiliations that are all the time trying to prevent them from following Jesus rightly. Okay, we saw this in China. We've talked about this before. Nearly every person we met was a first-generation Christian, and nearly everyone had a story about how their decision to follow Jesus had caused serious fallout with their family, workplaces, friend networks. Okay, conversion doesn't happen in a vacuum. And despite the evidence, though, in this scene in John 7, despite the evidence that Jesus is a prophet, perhaps even the Messiah, as folks are starting to call him by this point in John 7, the Pharisees will not have it. So when Nicodemus raises questions to the Pharisees along with the guards who are there on the scene with him, watch what happens. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this, this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, this is who he is, asked, does our law condemn a man without hearing him? to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. All right, I want you, if you can, leave that up on the screen behind me. Notice what the group does. Notice what the group does in this scene. And I want you to ask yourself, 
Do groups ever do this kind of thing anymore? They shame the guards who raise the first question. They shame them. They accuse them of being fooled, of being deceived. Oh, look, Jesus has gone and tricked you too. And then they make social distinctions as evidence. There are those who are educated. There are those who are leaders and rulers, and they know what's going on. But then there is the uneducated down here who don't have a clue. They're, they're, they're just a mob, which is a really intentional word choice, right? They're just a mob. And then Nicodemus dares to ask his question based on who he thinks Jesus might be. And they, they reveal they've got some deep-seated prejudices. In this case, against Galileans. Are you? You must be one of those sorry Galileans too. Let me see your birth certificate. Where are you from? You're just like them. I thought you were better than that. You're just like them. You're such a sympathizer. Yeah, groups never do that kind of stuff anymore. So Nicodemus disappears. He exits stage right. We think he's, he's done in the story. But then he, he reappears later in the Gospel of John. Remember where he reappears? John 19, at the burial of Jesus. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, this is John 19, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He's just like Nicodemus. He's undergoing the same social pressure not to admit what he believes. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which is enough for a royal burial. So it's at a great expense to Nicodemus. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. All right, take take a look at the story arc of Nicodemus here. The same man who goes to scold Jesus under the cover of night is now burying the body of Jesus under that same night sky. How do you get from here to there? I think Nicodemus reminds us of two things. The first, like we've already said, conversion doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in relation to social identity markers, group loyalties, affiliations that all of us have and that are trying all the time to keep us from following Jesus. And that brings up the second point. It reminds us that conversion also doesn't happen in a moment. That conversion in Nicodemus' story, and probably in all of our stories, is a lifelong process that takes place over time. We might call that sanctification, being made more holy, being made to look more and more like Jesus Christ, being made more, to look more and more like the Lord that we serve and follow over time. And what we might say is that conversion doesn't happen in a moment because it is for all of us a process of following Jesus more and more and in doing so, jettisoning 
the loyalties that would try to keep us from doing that. Loyalties that we were born into, loyalties that we picked up along the way, commitments that are trying to interfere with our ability to rightly identify who Jesus is and then follow him in the Jesus way. And like I said to begin, the reason this has stuck with me so much is because it's shaping the way I'm viewing what's going on in the world right now. You know what happens every four years in a season of politics, and I'm not going to wade into that, but what happens is group loyalty becomes the dominant narrative. Social media, news media, dinnertime conversations. The group I sign up for determines everything I think. Right? We see that play out all the time. Even if what one group is doing or the other group is doing raises serious questions for us, the response we get is, if you're a part of this group, you don't raise those questions. According to church legend, Nicodemus is eventually martyred. That ends his story arc. And so if we were going to plot that story arc for Nicodemus, I think we can do so pretty simply. I think it would look like this. He starts by defending his group. He's going to go talk to Jesus. After Jesus' conversation, he begins to question his group. We see that in John 7. John 3, or John 19, sorry, number 3, he's openly defying his group. And number 4, according to legend, he's destroyed by his group. You know, as I'm looking at that, It'd have been a lot better if number two started with a D. You can tell I'm a rookie still at this thing. Maybe doubting his group next time. Okay, let me see if I can make a little bit of sense of this with a story. I've told you before I spent time at the Shelby County Corrections Center, what used to be called the Penal Farm over by Shelby Farms. I'm in there every Wednesday morning with Hope Works teaching a Bible class. And undeniably, there is a very um, present, tangible culture inside a prison facility. It's a very macho, violent place. There's a lot of posturing, just a, a, a severe resistance to showing any sign of weakness because in there, weakness can get you killed. Now, when you meet guys from the Shelby County Correction Center one-on-one, or even in the small groups like the HopeWorks class, that culture begins to evaporate. And if you were to talk with them one-on-one, you'd see that's not the kind of person they are. They're just like a good guy who made a bad decision at some point in his life, and we can all relate to that. But it would seem that once you enter that system, on the whole, in the aggregate, the collective, You kind of have to check that personality at the door and you assent to the values of that place, of that group, of that culture. For example, I was, we teach through the Sermon on the Mount and we were talking about Jesus' language of turning the other cheek. And so I'm like, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek and this is what this might look like. And this guy on the second row starts laughing, which is not generally the experience I'm going for when I say Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, right? He just starts laughing. He can't control it. And he said, I'm so sorry, Mr. Eric. I just can't imagine that would work in here. How long do you think a guy would last in here who turned the other cheek? Not long. 
So that's a window into the culture. So I was really fascinated recently when I read a story from a friend and a professor out of Abilene who leads a Bible study at a prison out, out there outside of Abilene. And it's much like he's described it, like I've experienced here in Memphis in terms of the culture. And so he was doing the same thing. He was teaching and he got to the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And he's reading along in his Bible this story and he looks up and he can just see that their eyebrows are kind of raised and they're kind of looking at each other like, and, and so he says, the look on your faces tells me you're not buying any of this. And they agreed. They said, you can't do that kind of thing in here. You just can't do that kind of thing in here. Everybody would think you're weak. They'd mark you in ways you don't want to be marked. Yeah, you, you can't do that kind of thing in here. So he kind of pushes on and he says, well, have any of you ever acted as Jesus in this story? Which is the Nicodemus question. In spite of the culture around you, have you rightly identified Jesus and, and kind of just done the Jesus thing irregardless of them? And it's silence in there. Have any of you ever acted as Jesus in the story? Silence. <clears throat> and finally, this really big guy, Mr. Garcia, big, intimidating guy, speaks up. And he says, well, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but um, I help my cellmate. And the other guys in the class kind of make sense to my friend that his cellmate is somebody who has some cognitive disabilities. And he says, I help my cellmate. When my cellie first got put in with me, he says, I noticed he never, never took off his shoes. He always left them on. So one day I finally asked him, why don't you ever take your shoes off, man? And he wouldn't tell me. Weeks and months passed by and he never took his shoes off, never. Now, I want you to imagine that. <clears throat> He's in a Texas prison, days over 100 degrees, and he never takes his shoes off, not even to shower for months. Okay, what, must his, what must his feet have smelled like? What did they look like? So finally, after months, his cellmate finally confessed to him that the reason he never took off his shoes was because he didn't know how to cut his toenails. No one had ever taught him that. And he was deeply ashamed of his feet. So Mr. Garcia continued, I asked him to take off his shoes and his socks and his nails were awful. The smell was terrible. So I set him down and I had him put his feet in a pan of warm water and I took his foot in my lap and I cut his toenails for him, showing him how. I don't know what people would have thought if they walked by our cell, his foot in my lap like that. I would never have thought I'd be doing something like that, but I cut his toenails for him. Silence in the room. He says, is that an example of what you're talking about? My friend says, yep, that's an example of what I'm talking about. And it's an example of what we're talking about. <clears throat> because it's, it's this great story of a guy doing the Jesus thing. But all of us need to remember that when we do the Jesus thing, we don't just do it autonomously, separated from the rest of the world. We do it in spite of and in resistance to all of these loyalties around us, this culture around us that would shame us for doing the Jesus thing, 
for raising the Jesus question, for following Jesus when it calls that group culture, that group identity into serious question, like he did inside the prison. You see, each of us have identity markers too, like him. Some we're born into, like our economic status, our race, our nationality. Some we grow into, like how we're educated, where we're educated, what we do professionally. And some we, we just pick, like our political party, like the SEC football team we root for. Because, you know, the Lord knows most of you who root for those teams didn't go to those schools, right? <laughs> some we just pick. Some we just pick. Each of us has these groups or identities that we align ourselves with, either by birth or by choice. And each of those groups, schools, parties, loyalties, each of them has the potential to do these really great God-honoring, potentially kingdom-advancing things. And so many of them have. But each of them, just by the function of being a group of this world and not of heaven, also has the potential to be gathered up in their own momentum and roll over those who become outliers, raising the Jesus question. The group just wants to roll them over. Jesus places the same calling upon us that he did on Nicodemus. And that calling is conversion. And what we see in Nicodemus' story is that conversion is a process. Paul says that we all are being transformed, present tense, into his image with ever-increasing glory. We all, believers, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And at times, that transformation, that conversion, will put us at odds with our group, with our party, with ourselves, our identity itself. What will happen when that's the case? Will we press on anyways in the Jesus way or will we balk? Will we be too scared or will we cripple up and toe the line? I want to leave you with three questions. It's not typically how I end a sermon, but this is, these are the questions I want you to ask this week. What are my primary identity markers and group loyalties in my life? These questions are also in the link. What commitments are expected of those who share my identity markers and loyalties? And are those commitments consistent with the Jesus way? If you haven't become part of the Jesus community and you'd like to do that today in baptism, I'd love to receive you down here, like I said at the beginning. We're gonna stand and sing. We also have shepherds who'd love to pray with you in the back if you've got something on your heart. Let's stand and worship God together. I will never be the same again. I can never return. I am close.